1: Welcome to Revitalize Our Cities Now, the podcast series for entrepreneurs, real estate investors, developers, and anyone interested in urban revitalization. Our host is David Michael, a real estate lawyer with the Lipson Nielsen Law Firm. One of his areas of expertise is urban revitalization. David's guest will include some of the difference makers involved in all aspects of urban revitalization throughout Michigan. You'll listen as experts discuss acquiring land, redevelopment incentives, Real estate and nonprofit law, immigration and economic redevelopment, private equity, venture capital, and more. Thanks for joining us. And here's your host, David Michael.
2: Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Today we're talking with Mark Habel. Mark has 35 years of experience in real estate in nine different states. His experience includes a position with the Federal Housing Administration and the Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, where he was for five years Chief of Housing Programs in the Michigan State Office. Mark has also been Vice President of Technical Services in the Midwest Regional Office of Midland Mortgage Investment Corporation an independent consultant for the FHA and HUD for uh, Fannie Mae and uh, the what, – Mark, what is LIHTC? Low-income housing tax credit
0: programs. Uh, it's one of the uh, programs that's designed to produce
2: uh, affordable housing. And now Mark is a commercial property appraiser um he has had a lot of other experiences as well and as well we may get into some of those um uh, but interestingly i also want to mention that mark uh has been a board member and chief financial officer for five nonprofit corporations mark welcome to the show thank you for having me why don't you uh explain in your own words tell us uh the uh, the jobs that you've had and uh, – well, the, what, the jobs that you've had that relate to urban revitalization and the experiences that you've had in, in that sort of uh, area. Right after I got an MBA in
0: finance from the University of Michigan, 1976, uh, I went to work for HUD as an urban intern. HUD was interested in hiring some people that hope would hit the ground running in the Detroit office. Earlier that year, 60 Minutes had done a profile in the city of Detroit's HUD office, with um, the area office for Michigan. People were being arrested at their desk at that time uh, involving bribery scandals for HUD. Uh, HUD was looking to uh, revitalize its operation and uh, I was fascinated to get involved with uh, what I anticipated was going to be big dirty public business and it was. And how long were you with HUD? I was with HUD for 10 years. For five years I was uh, the chief of housing programs. And what did you do after that? Uh, after that uh, I worked independently for some time um, and then I was uh, basically an underwriter for uh, Midland Mortgage, uh, I, uh multifamily properties. Uh, I also was briefly the executive director of uh, uh, Detroit Nonprofit Housing Corporation. Uh for the last 20 years I've been a commercial real estate appraiser and I do some consulting work as well but primarily appraisal work and primarily uh
2: in the last 10 years specializing in the central city of Detroit. And that's one of the reasons I was really excited to talk to you today. Tell us about the the work of a commercial property appraiser. Well,
0: uh most often Uh, We are hired by a bank, a property owner or property purchaser. Most of my clients are banks who are making a loan on a commercial property in the central city. Uh, uh, Appraiser's job is typically to arrive at a market value. The definition of that is the most probable price that a property will uh, obtain if it's exposed to the market. And the buyer and seller arm's length, it's a fair, it's a fair deal. And that's, uh, that's typically how I spend my time. Coming up at the market
2: value on behalf of banks. But I work for a number of other clients as well. And a lot of people I think, especially if they've been involved in the finance or refinance of their home, they're familiar with the work of an appraiser from the standpoint that you just explained that they end up with a uh, a number, a monetary value for the real estate. Can you t- talk a little bit about the process that you go through to arrive at that number?
0: Well, if you're doing a commercial property, uh,
2: one typically is going to uh, uh,
0: decide which uh, which of three approaches to value are applicable to the to the property that you've been asked to uh, appraise. There would be a cost approach and in that approach, you would say, what would it cost to uh, replace this property new? How much is the land worth? What would it cost to build something that had equal value, equal functional utility? and That includes depreciation if you're looking at an older property. Uh, Second approach would be the income approach. most commercial properties people are buying because they produce income. How much is that in – how much is that income projected to be? What kind of capitalization rate are uh, investors, owners going to put on that to get a reasonable return uh, – a reasonable return that is uh, consistent with what market participants would expect. And the third approach that people would probably be most familiar with is sales comparisons um you look at recent sales and listings of property that are similar to the subject properties as possible and use that
2: to determine
0: what the market will pay for it
2: uh, i like the uh, the term that uh, real estate appraisers use they they refer to similar properties that on which they base the valuation of the subject property as comps yes right? uh, the, the, That's the the shorthand term
0: that's used in rent comps, sale comps, land comps. Uh, However, uh, there's a certain uh, – quite a bit of analysis that goes on that might adjust those comparables because the real estate markets are not efficient. All properties are unique. Uh, Rarely do you find cookie cutter properties particularly in the central city of
2: Detroit. Right. So the appraiser will uh, base his appraisal not just on the, uh, the last value that a, a comp sold for, but he will adjust that value. For example, if the subject property has a swimming pool but the comp doesn't, he might adjust the price upward for the subject property to account for the swimming pool.
0: Sure. Or on a commercial property, it might be. Everything else being equal – uh, if you have a property that has convenient fenced on-site parking uh, and another property has none or less, uh, certainly the property that has that convenient on-site parking almost certainly is going to be worth more. So you would you might see identical buildings, virtually identical buildings, but you would make that sort of adjustment to reflect the differences
2: in, in, in the amount of land and the parking that's on it. Oh, that's interesting. So it's not even just the building itself, but it's the uh, the amenities and the appurtenances uh, to that building.
0: Most of the time, I'm asked to appraise what uh, what's called real property, and that's going to be land and improvements. Uh, it'll be uh, it could include somebody wanted me to put a value on the raw land as if there were nothing on it. But usually, what it is, it's a value that is the combination of all of those together how much is the site worth, how much are the site improvements worth, how much are the building improvements worth, arrive at a single final number
2: for that. Well, we're here to talk about urban revitalization, and I know you have uh, uh, some very interesting views on the intersection of commercial real estate appraising and urban revitalization. Well, yeah, dealing
0: with... uh, the redeveloping central city. And most of the time I've been in Detroit, but I've been in several other uh, central cities, being asked to look at properties that might be targets for redevelopment. And uh, in doing that, uh, some of the special problems that we run into are that markets can change very rapidly. And appraisers, like assessors who are determining taxable values, uh, have a hard time keeping up with trends, we sometimes are are guilty of operating on trailing data uh, because uh, there is the temptation to say, well, oh, I'd like to rely on sales and leases and I have some sales and leases here that are only several months old. But if you have a property perhaps that's going to be redeveloped, it's going to be improved in some way, it might not be on the market for a year and – So you're going to say to yourself, gosh, can I hang my hat on something that might be a year and a half old by the time this property comes online? If I can't reasonably because the markets have proven to be changing rapidly, there's other things going on, how confident am I that I can project what the market trend is going to be? Basically, we talked about adjustments. How confident am I that I can – can I project that value will be greater a year from now than it is right now? And uh, and take that projection and say to a bank, okay, here you are. I think you should lend money on a value that isn't there yet. Trust me. How on the do other you, hand, if I if I rely only on trailing data, there are people who'd be saying, "You just
2: don't know what's happening here." Mark, how does how does an appraiser or how does the um, the person who retains the appraiser, for example, a bank, uh, how how do how does one judge? How good a job an appraiser has done? I think
0: that uh, probably, uh, probably uh, we will be judged on whether or not uh, the projections are realized on a commercial property. Uh, if it's a multifamily property, are the are the rents and expenses producing the inc- net income you expected? And that would be true on just about any commercial property. If it's vacant. Did they rent it at the price that we projected it would be rented at? Uh, quite often we'll say, gee, it wasn't our fault. It was the underwriter's fault, uh, something that I wrestle with an awful lot in uh, in redeveloping properties in the central city, something I think a, a layperson can, can understand a bit and that is uh, I will say that, um, all right, uh, here's a new condominium project. And, the market tells me that if they develop this on the schedule, they say they're going to develop it, that they can sell these units in the city of Detroit – this is a, in the redeveloping part of the city – a typical number, $350 a square foot. Well, if it takes them longer to develop it than they said it was going to so that they don't come in on the schedule that they predicted
2: … They incur carrying costs.
0: And they say, we've decided to list him at $425 a square foot. Well, it's not the appraiser's fault. Um, it's maybe between uh, the developer and his banker.
2: You mentioned a couple of concepts that I'd like you to sort of give us definitions for. You mentioned uh, central city. What do you mean when you say central city? When I talk about the central city um, – I,
0: I Detroit is 140 square miles. It sprawls a lot. There are parts of it that will remind you a bit of suburban sprawl, of the its old older inner ring of suburbs. Um when I talk about the central city, I think I'm probably talking about the oldest part of the city. Um if you want to uh, uh why don't you take a radius that might go three or four miles from uh the central business district. You know, put it on the Renaissance Center three or four miles out.
2: Okay. And you also mentioned uh, at the concept of underwriter. What do you mean by underwriter? Well,
0: uh,
2: I spent probably half my career
0: basically doing underwriting. Uh, the underwriter may be the person uh, uh, at the bank. Uh, uh, let me start by saying, here are the sort of participants that somebody might run into when they're developing a property in the city of Detroit or just buying one, a commercial property. Um, first they're going to talk to the loan officer at the bank if they're going to borrow money. Um, they uh they say, look, we've we've bought it, we're going to buy it, we have a purchase agreement. And so the un, uh sale the loan officer will look at it and then say, well, you know, this might be a good deal. It'll be taken to the underwriter who might say, are we willing to make loans in this area and under what terms? Uh, If it looks like it might be a good deal, banks particularly in recent years uh, are going to be by regulation required to hire an independent appraiser. The bank cannot have someone on its staff do it nor can the borrower hire an appraiser and provide that appraisal to the bank. The idea is that they want the appraisal operation to be independent. There have been some scandals over the decades involving appraisers so that uh, there are a lot of
2: uh, walls put up between an appraiser and an underwriter. And I I think you bring up a really good point. The uh, financial crisis of 2008 disclosed some, I I guess to use the popular parlance, collusion between some appraisers and uh, some lenders or at least mortgage originators, mortgage loan originators, where essentially – and this uh, this is nothing new. This is not in investigative journalism or, or revealing anything people don't know now. But uh, essentially some unscrupulous loan originators would basically say, I need this property to appraise at this value and they would find a shady appraiser who would – appraise the property at that value. So it's 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 as recently as, as the last decade or so, right? Well, Um
0: Well, back in the 70s, the scandal at HUD in Detroit involved appraisers taking X amount of dollars to come up with the right number, what was called making value. And uh, that was what 60 Minutes was talking about among other things
2: back in 1976. And so as a result of especially the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the Dodd-Frank uh, legislation uh, introduced some safeguards including the independence of appraisers that are required for federally-backed mortgage loans? Yes. Um,
0: I think one can, can argue that we might get – we might be able to learn something from each other if, if underwriters, loan officers uh, – and appraisers could speak to each other a bit more but there's the fear that there'll be undue influence. So uh, we tend not to. Uh, to give an example how things can go wrong in that case, um, uh, we were appraising a new property and It was a new construction and uh, everything looked pretty good that it, this might happen. Uh, it turned out that the bank that the developer wanted to lo- use just said – We – you've been a great borrower. We like everything you're doing. The numbers probably make sense here but go somewhere else because our underwriting staff tells us that we have too much portfolio exposure in this type of
2: product in this area. So we're not going to make the loan no matter how good it is. And just following up on my earlier question about what do you mean by underwriter. So – Part of that idea is the loan officer or the customer relation manager at a bank or a lending institution, he or she is the one that has the incentive to to make the loan, to go out and, and sell a financial product so that the bank makes money. But the underwriter is the person that makes sure that the loan will meet all of the good business practice guidelines of that bank of that industry and also as you just pointed out uh coincides with that particular institution's portfolio needs at that time meaning there might be so many uh short term loans they can make or so many long term loans so many loans of a certain size so many foreign investments things like that yeah an underwriter for example will be delivered so let's say a market
0: value by an appraiser. Let's just say that market value is identical to the purchase price in the property. Things look good. Well, that underwriter frequently facing an underwriting committee is going to say, all right, um, I'm going to loan you money for 15 years or 20 years or 25 years. Here's the interest rate. Um, Here's how much uh, you need to put in of your own equity investment. Maybe it's 65 percent. Maybe it's 75 percent. Back before the last recession, there were some people who were pushing 80, 85 uh, percent for commercial properties. Uh, he will determine, OK, um, everything looks great but I'm still worried. So let's say we're going to give you a loan that is going to amortize over 25 years. It's 75 percent loan to value. We'll put a debt service coverage ratio in. This is all based on a market value you're dealing with, all based on a purchase agreement. But then he'll say, I'm worried or the committee will say, "I'm we're worried. So uh, you have a bloom payment that's due in five years. So that we're going to revisit the whole thing five years from now or maybe eight years or ten years from now. Uh, these are all decisions that are uh, something that uh, complicates the market value conclusion.
2: You know you mentioned something else mark that i i I don't think we've talked about or addressed at all on this uh this program um, you mentioned varying lengths of mortgage loans. I think a lot of listeners are probably familiar with the concept of a thirty year conventional residential mortgage loan i uh, i i I think that's been traditionally the uh, residential loan product, the 30-year mortgage loan. I think a lot of people might be familiar with the concept of the 15-year residential mortgage loan, but it's pretty much – those are the those are the two lengths. And you mentioned it could be any length in a commercial setting, right? Yeah. 30 years is very long. Uh,
0: you can get into FHA mortgages. 40-year mortgages have been made over the decades for FHA multifamily new properties. Uh, but, but those have,
2: those are programs where the they're, they're, they have another objective. They have a governmental objective. They have a housing um, a governmental policy housing issue to address. So it's not necessarily all about making money like a commercial lender would. Yeah, ninety percent loan
0: to value ratio. These are these are mortgages that are made by private organizations by banks. But they're insured by the federal government. And the federal government said, "We'll insure it. You'll pay a little bit for that insurance. In exchange for that, we're going to give you terms that uh, somebody else might not give you. Uh, that's going to the terms that are going to reduce your uh, your annual mortgage payments because of the length of the mortgage and uh, it,
2: because we're insuring it. You'll to get a lower interest rate too." You know, I'm not sure whether this is, uh, something that you can speak to, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, in, in real estate, there is, uh, we talk about a construction loan and this is commercial real estate. We're talking about a, a construction loan. And as soon as the construction is complete, the lender will convert that or another lender will convert that to a, 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 a financing loan or a refinancing of that project. Can you talk about that? Yeah, that would be called the
0: permanent loan, the construction loan, the permanent loan. There are many other types, uh, um, mezzanine loans. And why are there different loans?
2: loans? Why 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 doesn't a commercial developer simply get one loan to build and pay off that property over the life of the project or some term of years?
0: If the property is ready to go as is. That's the type of loan that will be made. Once you get into a construction loan, you start to get into what could be a very uh, complicated analysis of cash flows. We can get into it, but I- I'm not sure you want to. Well, just a uh, little bit, just all right. Give well, some examples. Whose money goes first? OK? Um, uh, the, the borrower, the developer, comes in and say, "Boy, are you folks lucky?" I bought this piece of property in the city, of Detroit, fifteen years ago for a dollar a square foot, and I'm certain your appraiser is going to claim it's worth fifteen dollars a square foot. There's my equity, right? I don't have to put a dime in this. Am I right? Well, and the underwriter will say, "Well, okay, fine. Maybe this is going to work out," but ordinarily, the developer's money goes in first, uh, and if he can, uh, if he has piece of land that he's owned for a while that's worth a lot, well, that becomes a key variable in deciding just how much equity he's putting in. Um, Then you have to determine, gosh, uh, all right, it's a construction loan. Is he his own general contractor or is he hiring general contractors or just subcontractors? Who's involved in the project the how, quality of the, the how much the, confidence do you have here? Do you want a performance and payment bond? uh I was involved once years ago, and her property had it was topped off at five stories. Somebody dropped a plumb line down the side of the building, and it was dangling a little further from the the ground that it should be at the bottom Well uh, think Tower tower of Pisa right performance. performance Payment bonds, mechanics liens, these all come into play in making these construction loans and uh, uh, you have inspecting architects. Uh, You have uh, progress payments that are made on how much the developer is uh, is getting done. Uh, Is he on schedule? Is he off schedule? These can all influence the cash flows so that when you just say, well, yeah, here's how much we're going to make you in a construction loan. Um putting that number together is an elaborate piece of analysis and accounting.
2: So the way I would explain it as well, in addition to what you just explained, is that the construction loan is, to use your term, very speculative. It's we have a piece of property. The developer thinks I can turn this piece of property worth X dollars into a piece of property worth so much more. But at that point, it is, at least to some degree, speculative. And so the bank will make a loan even based on that speculation, but typically the interest rate is going to be higher yes. than the permanent loan. And that will account for or reflect that speculative uh, um, increase in value. And then once that's been accomplished and we have a piece of property and the bank can reassess or the lender can reassess its value over time, the The bank is no longer operating on the premise that we haven't seen the final product yet. Now we've seen the final product. We can give you a loan for a longer term at a better interest rate.
0: It can become even a bit more complicated. What if you've seen the final product but it's empty? Uh, I mentioned a bit earlier. What if uh, you develop a commercial building and the, the owner is certain that if he holds out for a little while longer, he will get $30 a square foot in rent. But he agrees with the appraiser, the underwriter, his own broker that he could lease it today and could have leased it six months ago at $25. Now what do you do? Uh, I don't know. People will sit around the table and discuss that. uh, I could weigh in on it. That would not be uh, something that the appraiser would typically be asked to weigh in. on. Sure. We have produced a document. Maybe, I don't know what that document might have said. Our document might have said $27. Might sure. have said 35 and we would have been dead
2: wrong. But now you bring up a good point. You say there are certain things that an appraiser wouldn't typically be asked to weigh in on. And I understand that. But as an appraiser, especially uh, in in the last 10 years or so, right? You've seen a lot of things in revitalization in the central city, in Detroit. Um, And we've talked, you and I have talked a little bit about the geography of the past, present, and future revitalization in in Detroit. Um, And just just by way of kind of uh, setting the table for your comments uh, on that topic, you mentioned the the figure. How big is Detroit? Square miles or square, the the area? Of Detroit. It's pretty sprawling, right? It's about 140 square miles. Oh, okay, um, right. So why does why does revitalization? And I'm starting, I guess, with a premise that I haven't mentioned yet. Revitalization seems to start in the central city, as opposed to neighborhoods. Or or is that not correct? Well, certainly the highest
0: prices in the city of Detroit now are. Um, radiating out from the central business district, midtown, these areas. There have been areas of the city that have been pretty good even when things were not so good in the city uh, that have been stable let's say. Uh, Indian Village would be one. Um, the Rosedale Park area has long been known as quite a, a nice community where prices have been stable. But the numbers that we're seeing now in the city are unprecedented. Um, um, example I might uh, uh, bring up might be this. If somebody wants to live in uh, an industrial building that's been converted to a loft style uh, unit and basically it will be brick walls and maybe it will be uh, three times as long as it is wide and have windows only at one end, you can pay for that the same amount that you will pay for um, a nice home in Bloomfield Hills per square foot. Uh this is – living
2: – being there is popular. Living in the central city is popular. Are well, the prices anywhere else in the city even in the other good areas that you gave a couple of examples about? Um, is there anywhere else in the city where those – the prices are that high or no, the values are that good I should no. say? Um, no.
0: Midtown, the central business district, recently Corktown uh, have been areas where – People will pay the most and the popular style of residence is what I just described. It's kind of an industrial style, loft style development. If uh, you don't have a building that looks like that, your unit will be based around a sort of great room concept. I think people are familiar with where your living room, dining room and kitchen are all integrated. Uh, That's become very popular and that's what people are paying for. One reason those numbers will be big in the city of Detroit – is where you get into – is due to tax policy and that's something that we wrestle with all the time because we have to forecast as appraisers what property taxes are going to be and tax – property tax incentives have been very influential on what is developed in the city of Detroit and where it's being developed. Uh, I mentioned the – The industrial style loft in the central city of Detroit that might sell for as much per square foot is the home in Bloomfield Hills. Um, Part of that is because many of these are developed in what are called neighborhood enterprise zones in the city of Detroit where without exaggerating too much, you might figure that your taxes could be anywhere from 5 to 20 percent of what they would be were you fully
2: taxed according to – state equalization value formulas. And these uh um, enterprise zones that they, they, they've been around for quite a while, are they still available in the city of Detroit? Yeah, the city's looking the city is
0: almost fully committed all the geography that it can, but there's some adjustments being made. Uh, I I try to follow just what's going on. 15 percent of a of a municipality that qualifies in the State can qualify as a neighborhood enterprise zone, uh, which allows uh, uh homeowners, developers uh of uh residential real estate to take advantage of this extreme tax exemption for up to fifteen years. Uh right now the city has just about committed all of the space that it has. And the space are the spaces that somebody who is uh, developing in the central city without knowing would predict what those areas were. There are the areas that the city years ago when this first started said were most likely to attract investment. It would be Midtown, the central business district. Uh, It would be the area – Indian Village would all be qualified. Certain areas that have now are, tr- are now attracting investment were exempted because there are new areas that are attracting investment that people thought maybe were not going to attract investment 15, 20 years ago. Um, I, I don't want to use too much jargon about the city but those might be uh, communities that people would know. Island View, the North End, these are areas that are not – you're not able to get those but people look for other ways that they can find incentives, uh, other types of incentives, and there are a number of tax incentives that the state has, and the city is working all the time on, on trying to make uh, the uh, the tax policy uh, conducive to
2: continued revitalization. You know, if we have time, I'd like to talk a little bit about tax policy and revitalization, but. You you brought up another point and it it got me thinking, the central city and why the values there seem to be uh, so much higher than other places in in the city, even higher than other desirable places in the city of Detroit. Do demographics play a role in that And, and do demographics and some other factors play a role in that higher valuation in the central city?
0: That's a tough one. First to talk about the areas of revitalization. People come up with different numbers. Um, the biggest number that one might hear is that twenty five percent of the city is attracting investment that might cause it to be an improving market as opposed to a declining market or a, a stable market. Uh, it might be fifteen percent. Are demographics and influence, I guess I'm gonna say that residential demographics may not be. And that's because when we look at the residential changes in the city of Detroit, when you look at how population is moving into the city of Detroit, an awful lot of it involves displacement of people who, of lower and moderate incomes who are being displaced and moving elsewhere because their properties have now become very valuable and are being renovated or simply occupied for people who can afford to pay more
2: sure, so, so the demographic the, the original demographic has changed sure so and i suppose that's a good thing if you actually own the property in question, because then you can sell it at a good profit. but if you're a renter, it's not such a good thing because the owner of the property may sell it and and you have no choice but to move someplace else. Um, by demographics, I also have kind of um, I also mean and I've noticed in the last decade, especially along with the commercial redevelopment in the central city in the city of Detroit. There is a lot more residential development in what we used to call downtown and it's young people.
0: The population of the city of Detroit is increasing significantly in the areas uh, of revitalization. Uh, People want to live there. Uh, I think that part of it is a general national trend – that we find that shows that a lot of young people prefer a traditional walkable pedestrian friendly neighborhood to suburban sprawl. Uh, so that you're seeing this revitalization not just in the central city of Detroit but other places that had that kind of neighborhood, Ferndale, Royal Oak, Plymouth, Rochester, Ann Arbor. These would be examples of cities that had that in place. There have been some municipalities that are trying to create that where there wasn't one. Um, Macomb Township, Shelby Township would be a couple of examples. But it is true the people that are moving in increasing population in the areas of concentrated redevelopment in the city tend to be um, urban pioneers, uh, urban hipsters, uh, empty nesters, employees of the firms. Quicken Loans, General Motors, Ford's coming into uh, For- Corktown, younger employees of these, of these companies and they tend to be people that are small households. They tend not to have children and they tend, tend to be people who don't require the number of city services as did the people who used to live there. So the population is denser, and it's denser with people who have higher incomes and require fewer city services. It uh, it means there's a lot of money
2: available to uh, to spend on real estate, and it also increases the value per square foot of that real estate when you have, you know, especially. Let's take a. Um, a, a a, a typical young person working for a tech firm, something like Quicken Loans or something like that in the central city in Detroit, uh, that person doesn't need that act- that much actual residential real estate because that person is out most of the time. That person is working. That person is out at restaurants and clubs. That person is out doing activities, things like that. Well, yes, and like
0: other cities, other densely populated central cities now, we're seeing uh, people moving in who are willing to take a smaller unit because it's so expensive. Uh, I think it's changed a bit because we've seen some more condos being developed in the central city in recent years. But a couple of years ago, I saw a tis- statistic that showed that of all the new units that were brought into the concentrated uh, redevelopment areas of the central city, the average size was 800 square feet. That was, that's was small. New in rehab, yeah. And certainly, that's not uh, something a family of four is going to live in. You don't hear, uh, you don't see that. Uh, um, uh, you don't see much housing being built for a family of four that we typically would think of as a residential, typical residential neighborhood. We're going to have a park. We're going to have a garage. We're going to have a little bit of
2: a yard, and we're going to be near a good elementary school. Gee, I wonder whether that's a, is that a modern phenomenon? I seem to remember a lot of old movies. I'm thinking of Rear Window in particular, where you have single people, you have uh, couples without children, but you also have whole families with children living in big apartment complexes in a central city area in, for example, Chicago or New York, places like that. When we... We're talking about the central city in Detroit and its redevelopment and revitalization and what you just said coincides with my observation. It doesn't seem that there are a lot of families with young children that they're sending to primary school in this redevelopment. There are
0: fewer, fewer families with children. Uh, as a percentage of the population it, it, i mean used is, is to be.
2: I, I guess what I wanted to talk about is, is there a reason it's different now or is it different now than it was 75 years ago, 60 years ago? It is, I think it's too early to tell whether or not
0: we're going to go back to a, a, a time where people in the city of Detroit lived in, in – and other major central cities as well where people lived in uh, – um, densely populated sidewalk-oriented walk-up buildings and uh, the kids went down to a park or um, a school but in a community that was basically built as street walls at the sidewalk. I don't know if we're going to see that. Uh, It's too early to tell if we're going to see that in the city of Detroit but certainly there are a number of people who are coming into the central city of Detroit living and working for whom the idea of Street walls, sounds pretty attractive and fun. Very
2: interesting. Well, you mentioned tax policy.
0: Property what are your tax th-
2: policy. What you, What are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, the state of Michigan has very complicated property tax policy. Uh, much of it uh, stems back to 1994, the Headley Amendment. Uh, uh, many people are know something about this because if they own a home, they have to wrestle with it. But there's such a thing as – in Michigan, it's called state equalized value and the other uh, key term is taxable value. Michigan taxes property at a state equalized value which is supposed to be 50 percent of its market value except that – it becomes taxable value when you acquire your property and once you have that property, unless you improve the property or sell it, it cannot go up basically any more than the rate of inflation. Or 5 percent. Trevor Or 5 percent. And we've greater. had an a area of low inflation pretty much since Headley Amendment was passed. So you've got a situation where um, somebody can buy property and it can go up greatly in value and your holding costs for it can be very low. Where does this become influential? Um, Where this can become very influential is if you are a speculator in land in the central city of Detroit and you bought that land for a dollar a square foot 20 years ago, um, you are now – and it was – the SEV was – state equalized value was 50 cents a square foot You might be paying taxes on something adjusted for inflation on $0.80 a square foot on a piece of land that could be worth $20 a square foot or $30 a square foot and – so your holding costs are pretty low. It's cheap to be a speculator if you have a tax policy like that. At the other end, somebody comes into the central city and buys one of these condominiums that I talked about it, $350 a square foot. If there is a tax incentive on it, they might only be paying taxes as if it were worth $35 a square foot or $50 a square foot. But if it's in an – but when it – that tax exemption runs out in 15 years or if it's not in an area where you have that, is the city assessor going to say, Congratulations. You just paid $350 a square foot for this. Um, We agree with you. It's worth $350 a square foot. $175 a square foot is your state equalized value. Um, The percentage that you pay on homestead property in the city of Detroit will be basically three and a half percent of that. So you are now going to be paying – Uh, upwards of five, six dollars a square foot in taxes on your 800 square foot property. And that becomes extraordinary. If the assessor says, yeah, it's worth 50% of the market value, we're going to take that market value and say it, uh, there's controversy about just how this is supposed to be done. Uh, there are a number of people who are market participants in the central city of Detroit who will say that if that decision were made uniformly on every investment in the city of Detroit, that, um, you would disrupt the markets.
2: So but, what you, what you have been describing is what we call uncapping. If I own a piece of property, my, the taxes I pay on it can, rise or the value on which I pay taxes can rise no more than the rate of inflation or 5% a year, whichever is greater. But if I sell that property, after after a number of years, let me go back, I'm holding on to this property. It has X value the first year and over the years, it, it grows to 10 times X value. I'm still paying because of the way the tra- tax taxes are structured. I'm still paying at a a pretty low rate. I'm not paying taxes on 10 times the value of the property. But if I were to sell that property when it's worth 10 times the value at which I purchased it, that new owner would be paying taxes on that full value. Yeah, and if we started
0: having these condos developed. 15, 20 years ago in the city of Detroit before the last recession. Some of these have come uncapped and the tax exemption has run out Uh, and commercial properties that are getting developed as well as these residences might be – not have these tax incentives and Detroit has quite high taxes. There are only a couple of municipalities in the State of Michigan that have higher taxes, few of them than, than Detroit, but basically you're talking about 89 mills, uh, 70 mills, 71 mills on residential property. The uh, example might be, and this this is one anecdotal example. I'm, I'm talking to somebody who sells his Who's, who's uh, excuse me? Somebody who's living in a resid- uh, industrial loft conversion and in, in Midtown Detroit. His tax exemption is running out. He knows it's running out next year. The unit across the hall from him, identical to his, sells for three hundred thousand dollars. He says, "Well, my nine hundred dollar tax bill is going to go up next year. What? What's my SEV going to be? The SEV came out, and he got an SEV." That was not at fifty percent of what he thought was fair market value because he was sure his property was worth more th- than three hundred thousand because values were going up. The city said it's worth two hundred thousand. Okay.
2: Well, that's a good thing, right? Right. Because he's paying less in tax.
0: Yeah, sure. Um, if you are living at um, Seven Mile in Hayes, and your house is worth forty thousand dollars, and That same year, the city assessor says that your property is worth – it gives you an SEV of $19,000 which instead of two-thirds is 95 percent. Is this consistent? Should it be consistent? It's very difficult to know. Uh, as I said, there are some market participants that uh, I speak to who say if in the redeveloping central city, tax policy were administered exactly as the formula says,
2: that it would be disruptive to markets. Well, are you saying that the, the city of Detroit um, purposefully or, or knowingly uh, sort of – Puts the brakes on the uncapping or or tries to ameliorate the effects of the uncapping to perhaps encourage development in the central city as opposed to the outlying areas I do think so, but
0: not 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 not, not uh, they're not being unfair to their outlying areas they're simply trying to be fair to investors in the city of Detroit I or think. more encouraging to and, the and central to try city. to make the market organized because things are changing so fast taxes can be so high that they're they're trying to help make thing make it predictable for people i i don't want to con, uh, offer too much in the way of criticism of the way this has done the city of detroit because i think gosh in the last 5 years um they've become so much better so much more efficient so much easier for me as an appraiser to predict what taxes might be because when I'm doing one of these properties that is under purchase agreements, so it's gonna come uncapped. There's a huge investment that might be going into the property. Uh, my prediction of what the taxes are going to be can have a significant influence on market value.
2: You know, Mark, we're almost out of time, but I did want to ask you about uh, the concept of some central city and outlying areas, and do you think? Detroit should be a smaller city? Do you think that the government should be concentrated in the central city or in a smaller area than it is now? Should Detroit be broken up? What are your thoughts on that?
0: I don't know that my thoughts are particularly pertinent. But what what I hear people talk about and I've been hearing people talk about for 40 years is – if you work for the city, if you're a municipal planner, do you plan for a smaller city? Uh, if so, what's it going to look like? Um, can you have redevelopment everywhere? Uh, can you provide city services everywhere? As an appraiser, what I would encounter might be this. Um, just take Midtown and compare it to an area that might be an area where we still have many more demolitions than we do new construction. In those areas, can you afford to – Keep all the streets repaired, all the sidewalks repaired, all the street lights working. Um, can you afford to take excellent care of the city-owned properties that have reverted to uh, – as a result of foreclosure abandonment? Uh, it can be very difficult to maintain all 140 square miles if you have a population that now is a little more – maybe 35 percent of what it was at its peak. And in many of the outlying areas, it's still getting smaller. After all, things we are going well in the city, but we have uh, still about four times as many demolitions every year in
2: the city of Detroit as we do new construction of residences. Right. So we have a lot of new construction in the central city. We have a lot of revitalization, a lot of redevelopment in the central city but in a lot of neighborhoods outside the central city we're still clearing surplus inventory you can drive
0: a, a mile and a half from the center of the, the area of most concentrated redevelopment in the city and i might say let's take the corner of mac and woodward and find yourself in areas where there just isn't much going on and uh most of the formerly densely populated residential blocks only have several houses left.
2: Overall, are you optimistic about the future of commercial property, commercial real estate development um, expanding out from the central city in Detroit? Yeah, I, we're seeing it. Um, certain areas that
0: uh, we might have considered fringy, or the term I sometimes like to use, offshore. Now is attracting quite a bit of investment. Um, I wish it had happened sooner, because an awful lot of nice properties just didn't make it uh, because of what you've seen as decline in the city. Uh, and now you see people wanting to take these old houses, and they do. They're buying them inexpensively, they're fixing them up, and they're finding that when they're done, it's worth as much as they have in it. And uh, what a good thing that is. Uh, and you're starting, and you're seeing it in more areas. I mentioned the North End, uh, western part of Woodbridge, North Corktown, uh, Island View. These are all areas where uh, people are
2: buying properties and fixing them up, and it's great. Is, is there still time to get into those particular areas uh, on the ground floor, so to speak, or, or are the values there already uh, uh, kind of uh, skyrocketing? I don't want to try to call market
0: trends. I have a very difficult time uh doing it myself. I worry sometimes that I am uh, – I am missing the market trends. Very early on in our conversation, I talked about uh, my fear of operating on trailing data uh, and my fear of trying to project market trends that seem unprecedented. So, I don't know that I can say a lot, a lot about that but what you seem to see – what we seem to see uh, happening is somebody who says, well, it's way too expensive. Uh, anywhere around the corner of Woodward and Mac, um let's go a mile and a half out in this direction and uh, a little bit beyond where people are fixing things up and be the first ones to fix it up. And I'm glad to see there are people like that. There are still a lot of urban pioneers who are, uh, um, who are willing to do this and part – they're optimistic because they wouldn't be doing it if they hadn't seen uh, a previous uh, generation do it successfully.
2: And although they're kind of expanding outward uh, geographically, they're doing it because they're seeing people who came before them having some success at it. So success breeds success and it sort of expands from itself.
0: certainly Burrus uh, Certainly. You could have this conversation, for example, with somebody who's been in Corktown for the last uh, – who's been in Corktown ever since Tiger Stadium was demolished. And uh, you could hear their optimism and uh, listen to their forecasts about what's going to happen next.
2: Mark, it's been a real pleasure talking with, to, with you today. Thank you so much for being here and thank you for sharing the insights that you've acquired with our listeners. I enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Revitalize Our Cities Now. If you have a topic you would like us to discuss or questions about the show, you can email us at dmichael at lipsonnielsen.com. Make sure you join us again for our next episode when we talk with another difference maker, helping to revitalize our cities now.